At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. If you've ever dropped a Mentos in a Diet Coke, or at least watch a YouTube, some, uh, YouTube of someone doing it, you know that there are certain ingredients, certain entities, when combined, that cause a combustion. Today in our text, we find two of those ingredients. If you are ever in a sales job or maybe just being instructed on how to have polite conversation in our society, you know that there's two topics that you always avoid. Religion and politics. Yet this morning, we come to a passage that essentially merges those two things. Peter begins, as he has been writing and instructing the church, to begin thinking about how they are called to engage in regards to the governing authorities and the politics around them. And so this morning, we're going to take time, it is election week after all, to talk about religion and politics. And it may be a combustion, but at least it'll be exciting, right? As we unpack this text, a couple things I just want to say a little bit to kind of prep you. One, I think this is a very significant and important text for us in this season. I think it's important for us to understand it and to understand its implications. And so I'm warning you on the outset, this will not be the lightest, most jovial, most illustrative sermon you've ever heard. And part of that is because I really want you to understand the Word of God and what it really means for us, not just in this moment, but how we are called to relate to the society that which God has placed us. You know, I know that no matter what happens on Tuesday, there's going to be a mix of reactions. Some of you might be elated. Some of you will be disappointed. Some of you will be disenfranchised. There will be all, no matter what the results will be, there will be a mix of reactions. But all of us will face the question of how do we relate to the government and the society in which we live and in many ways, the text that we're looking at this morning, that's the question that kind of sits behind what Peter gives as his instruction to the church. Let, you remind, let me remind you a little bit of where we've been. So maybe if you're new or joining us for the first time this morning, we've been studying through this book of First Peter. And Peter writes to the church in his original audience where the church is scattered across Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey, to instruct them on how to live as God's people in the midst of a culture that was becoming increasingly hostile against them. And so Peter writes to encourage them to be faithful, to stand strong, to have hope, to be, as we've titled this series, unshakable, to be the sort of community that no matter what comes against them, they're able to stand strong and be unshakable. And prior to our text this morning, Peter's been in a part of his letter, has been reminding them of who they are, what their purpose is, and, and really where they're at. Right? If you remember in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he reminds them that they're a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We summarize that by reminding ourselves that those that are in Christ are God's people. That is our identity. We are part of his 
kingdom. We belong to him. But Peter not only reminds us of our identity, he reminds us of our purpose, that we're here to proclaim his excellencies, who he is to the world around us, that not only does the church have a great identity, it has a great purpose to make known to the world who our God is. And then last week, we looked at verses 11 and 12, where Peter reminds us where we're situated and located. When he says, beloved, in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as foreigners and strangers, is another way you might use those terms. Really, the idea is as resident aliens, as those who are, whose citizenship belongs to one place, but find themselves living in another. When I was in high school for couple of years I lived in the country of Egypt. And when I was in Egypt, I was a resident alien. My citizenship was still American. I carried an American passport, but I lived in a different culture, different than my own, with different expectations and norms and all sorts of things. And part of living in that culture was adapting and adopting some of what that culture was. But I never stopped being an American because that's what it means to be a resident alien, to have your citizenship in one place and to be living in another. What Peter has been reminding the church is that we are citizens of God's kingdom. If you're in Jesus this morning, you belong to the kingdom of God. That is where your citizenship and where your identity ultimately is. But you find yourself living in the world, living in nations, in societies, in a global world that is not God's kingdom. And so naturally the question, from what Peter's been unpacking, naturally I think the question comes up that says, if I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, if that's where I'm ultimately rooted, my identity and purpose are rooted, how am I then called to relate and engage the other kingdom that I find myself in? That's not a question for just us as Christians here in America. That's any Christian that finds itself in a society or nation must ask the question, how am I called to live in the midst of this kingdom if my citizenship is ultimately in heaven and in God's kingdom? Well, in many ways, in verses 13 through 17, Peter unpacks for us how we are called to live in the midst of the kingdom that we find ourselves. And this is essentially the summary of his answer, and it's, I think, the idea that we're going to see unpacked in this passage, that God's people are good citizens, that God's people are called to live and to be good citizens. Now, what for Peter, that's both good citizens to the place they find themselves, but that's also good citizens to the kingdom of which they are a part, the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean, though? How How do we actually live as good citizens? What does it look like for us to relate rightly to God, our King, and to the governing authorities and the place that we find ourselves? Well, that's essentially what Peter unpacks, and he gives us really, I think, three ways this morning that you and I can learn what it looks like to be good citizens as God's people. You see the first one right away in verses 13 and 14. He says this, Be subject, or another way you could translate that word is be submissive. That's the real idea. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
So what's the first way that we can learn to be good citizens? Well, Peter gives it to us, and you might summarize it this way, for God's sake, submit to your rulers. That part of the way we seek to live as good citizens is we live in submission to the rulers that are over us. Peter gives the controlling verb from the get-go, and he calls us to be subject. And when he uses that verb, what he's bringing up is the issue of order. The call for submission, wherever we find it within the biblical text, is often a call for submission to God's created order. In fact, you see that right away when Peter says, be subject, and then says, to every human institution. Or another way you might say that is to every human creation or human creature is really what the under the word underneath the text in the original language means and so what peter's reminding us is that we are called to be submitted to the order of creation that god has instituted and the people that god has appointed within that order god has created order within his world And because of that, we are called to be people that are submitted to the way that God has ordered his world. Now, Peter's clear in what the order that he wants to talk about in this passage when he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. And so what he's essentially reminding us is we are called to be submitted to the governing authorities that are over us, that we are to place ourselves underneath them and recognize that they have an authority given by God, and we are called to live in submission to them. Peter's first thing that we need to understand when it comes to how we live as good citizens is we need to recognize that God, in his sovereignty, in his ruling over the world, has ordained governing authorities as a means of his authority. That's why Peter says, be subject, and here's the controlling reason, for the Lord's sake. The call for submission is not ultimately just rooted in the governing authorities. It's rooted in God who has ordained those authorities. That God has instituted government as a means in his world. And we'll get to the purpose of why he institutes government in a moment. But he has instituted government within the world And that government is an extension of his authority. And because it's an extension of his authority, it's both accountable to him, but it means his people are called to be, to submit, to submit ourselves under it. Because when we submit ourselves under the authority over us, it displays our ultimate submission to God. Submission to God's created order is submission to God. This is what we see time and time again in Scripture. It's why kids are called ultimately to submit to their parents. It's why wives are called to submit to husbands. It's why husbands are called to submit to Christ. It's why we as citizens are called to submit under the governing authorities. Time and time again in Scripture, to submit under the authority that God has placed over you is ultimately to submit under God himself because he has instituted it and ordained it, and therefore our hearts are to be one of submission under what God has ordained. And so the natural disposition of the Christian towards being a good citizen is to be one of submission. Now, this is hard for us, right? This is challenging. I personally don't always like submitting to my governing authorities. 
You know, I was reminded of this several years ago when I was living uh, in the city of Akron. And when you live in the city, one of the things that you uh, get really frustrated with is all the stop signs and red lights that you encounter all the time. Um, and my goal in driving, just so we're clear, so you can know a little about me, is to get to, from point A to point B as quickly and as safely as possible with the safely being optional, right? I'm working on that. God's trying to sanctify me, but this has been generally my controlling uh, modus operandi. And so I had this habit, I developed this habit of not really wanting to sit and wait for the entire red light to turn green or like really coming to complete stops at the stop sign and one time my wife was in the car with me and she kind of called me out on it like, hey, you, you just kind of like decided to go there. Like, that's not okay. You got to wait at the red light. And I was like, ah, it's fine. Like, I'm, no, I, I can do what I want. I'm a good driver. I drive safely. I can make my own decisions, right? I don't need to listen to that. And she called me out right on the carpet and said, I doesn't sound like you really uh, have a heart that's like wants to submit to actually the rules and laws and the authority that God has for you. And I didn't. I thought I knew better. Why do I have to follow that rule? I like my own rules. I like my own ways. But what Peter reminds us of here is, when it comes to the Christian life, we're not called to just make up our own rules. We don't just always get to pick and choose what we want to obey. No, our hearts are called to be one of submission. Our disposition towards those in authority over us is to come underneath their authority and seek to live rightly. I don't think that means that God wants to nitpick every time we go 36 and a 35, but I think the better question is, where is our hearts when it comes to the authority, to the government, to the rules, to the laws around us? You say, well, what? I don't, but I don't get it. Why? Why? What's, what's the reason that I've ultimately got to submit? Well, Peter gets in some ways to the reason. He gives us why God ordains government to help us understand why it's important to live in submission. He makes it clear in verse 14 when he says, we're called right to submit to the emperor as supreme. So he looks at the chief level of government and then he looks at the local level of government or to governors as sent by him. And this is what he says, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So part of the reason is in a, the issue of authority, but the other reason is the purpose for which God has ordained government. It's healthy for us to understand what is the role of government? Why does government exist? Why does God give authority to certain individuals or groups of individuals in order to affect the law, to govern the land, to oversee? What is God's purpose? Well, Peter gives us the clear purpose here. The government exists to punish evil and to praise what is good. In many ways, Peter echoes the same thing the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, that the role of the state, the authority that is given to the government, is ultimately given so that evil may be restrained and good may be promoted. That is why that authority is ultimately given given. In our world, because of sin, it should be noted that anarchy allows for the greatest evil to thrive. Because where there is no rule and no restriction, the human heart is so desperately wicked that we will turn to sin, we will turn towards destruction, we will destroy the world and one another. And so God has given government ultimately in order to promote good and to punish 
evil. This is why government exists until Christ comes to establish his kingdom fully and finally. And it's because of that purpose that God calls us ultimately to submit. Now we'll get to in a moment, because I want to have a discussion about where do we do when we find ourselves in a situation where a government does not do that. But by and large, in our society, in our culture, in our world, our government promotes what is good and seeks to punish what is wrong. I realize that's a generalization. We can argue about specifics, but in general, and that's why Paul says, listen, this is why you are to be submitted to them. That's their purpose. That's what God has given them. And it isn't just relegated to whether you like the governing authorities over you or not. We have this tendency to think, well, if they're good people, then I should submit. If they're bad people, then I don't really need to submit, right? We have this narrative that comes up around election season. I guarantee you'll hear it this week, regardless of who ultimately wins in the election. And people will say, well, that's not my president. I don't need to listen to that person. But Peter doesn't give room for that in the Christian life because he understands the purpose of government. Most scholars believe that when Peter wrote this letter, he wrote it in probably 62 to 65 AD, and that he likely wrote it from the city of Rome. And you know who was the emperor over the Roman period during the time that Peter was writing this letter? It wasn't a good guy. It was Nero. And Nero is one of the most evil emperors in the history of the Roman Empire. He slaughtered millions. He literally burned a quarter of his own city and blamed it on other people. There's stories that Peter, that Nero would capture Christians, hang them upside down in his garden, and then light them on fire and burn them in order to light his garden at night. He was hideous, twisted, wicked, anti-Christian, as evil as it gets. And yet, Peter says, you are to be subject to every human institution and to the emperor as supreme because they carry a purpose. And we are to have hearts that submit towards God's ultimate purpose. Now, a couple sides on this. I know we're getting into some fun territory here, right? So one thing that I think is a good implication from this that we should recognize, we get the privilege in our society to have influence on our governing authorities. That is a privilege that many around the world do not have. We get that privilege. And I think when we seek to exercise that privilege, as some of you may already have and more of you will do this week, I think when it comes to exercising that, pri that privilege, we should remember God's purpose for government in seeking who we vote to be placed into office. And I think one of the great questions that you should ask yourself as you prepare to vote is what candidate, no matter what level you're voting for, what candidate will promote the greatest good and will hopefully punish and push against evil? That's a question you should ask yourself about the candidates that you evaluate. Do I believe this candidate will promote good? Which one of these two do I think will move? More towards what biblical goodness is, not just American goodness? And that we should vote accordingly. That's the closest you're going to get to me ever telling you who to vote for. <laughs> but I think it's at least a question that you should consider as you go to the polls. That you should remember God's purpose for government and vote in line as best you can with a clear conscience towards that purpose. 
The second question that naturally comes up then is what about the issue of civil disobedience? What about when the government is evil? When the government seeks to constrain or institute or engage policies that are unjust or unrighteous? How do we relate to that? And what we see in Scripture is that there is a role in place for civil disobedience. The midwives in Egypt hid the Israelite children because they were ordered to kill them. Daniel resisted the government that told him he could not pray to God. Peter, who wrote this letter in Acts chapter 5, stands before the governing authorities in Jerusalem and says, I will continue to proclaim the gospel even if you tell me not to because I must obey God rather than men. So there is a role in place for how Christians are to respond to an evil government, to places and policies and rules and laws that try to promote injustice or unrighteousness or are contrary to God's ways. And so how do we relate? Well, I think if we really are to see this and respond well, we should adopt this idea that we seek to live in submission to the state all the way up to the point where the state conflicts with God's rules or God's authority. That that should be our disobedience. John Stott, a well-known pastor, says it this way, we're to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to the God. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. Remember, Human authority is ultimately derived from God's authority. So where human authority is out of line or compelling us to live in a way against what God's clear word calls us to, we must be disobedient in those situations. But where it doesn't, we are called to have hearts of submission, regardless of who is in office. And it's part of the way that we live as good citizens. And part of the way that we live, even in regards to civil disobedience at times, is being willing to submit ourselves to the punishment that we face when we expose and use our prophetic voice and lie to expose unjust laws or unjust policies. I think this is one of the most brilliant legacies that we see not only in Scripture, but even in people and the lives of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and his call for civil nonviolent disobedience. And he well and famously noted, an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. So there is a place for civil disobedience. There is a place where we live as prophetic voices against injustice in the world, in our society. But that's out of a heart of submission, not out of a heart of revolution. That's the difference for the Christian. That's the way we live as good citizens. But there's a second way that Peter gives us, and it's in verse 15. So he continues this call to be submitted, and he says, For this is the will of God. Do you want to know what God's will is? You ever ask that question? What is God's will for my life? Well, this is. This is God's will. To be submitted, and then as he continues, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of God foolish people. We are called to live in a submissive way and then to be forces for good in the world. That part of the way we live as good citizens is by engaging and seeking to bring God's goodness, his righteousness, his justice into the world. 
so that when people look at us, as Peter says, they recognize the good that we bring, and when they attack us, they slander us, they put us down, it doesn't stick. Right? We're like Teflon. It just bounces off of us because they can't help but see the force for good that we are in the world, in our lives, in the way we live as a church. And what Peter's saying here is not just be nice people. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes I think this gets easily taken that like, well, if we're just nice people. No, we're agents for goodness in the world which means we use our lives to promote goodness, to fight against ungoodness and unrighteousness, to push and engage in the world in a way to bring benefit and flourishing to God's creation, to other people, to the communities in which we find ourselves. Hannah Anderson, in her excellent book, All That's Good, asks this simple question. Are you pursuing what is safe or what is good? Those are not always the same thing. That's, I think, a profound good that we have to ask ourselves. Are we just trying to live in the world in a safe, nice way? Because I don't think that's what Peter's calling us as Christians to be. But instead, we're looking for places of injustice, for evil, of wrongdoing, and we're seeking to commit ourselves in a way to bring goodness into those places, to bring goodness to bear on our communities, to battle against injustice and unrighteousness. Because it's that that promotes and shows our witness. It's that that, as he says in verse 12, that when they see those sorts of good deeds, they glorify God on the day of visitation. Yes, tip your Starbucks barista as a good citizen and good Christian, but also fight against injustice. Speak up for those that can't speak. Look for the places of darkness and seek to bring light there because that is what the Christian witness has been about for generations, about bringing goodness to bear. Christians are the first one to start orphanages, to start hospitals. Christians are the ones throughout the centuries who have fought for the poor, the sick, the neglected, the abused. It's Christians that are leading the way against anti-trafficking efforts around the world. It's Christians who are willing to go into the poorest places of our world and give up their lives and their rights so that goodness and light can be brought into darkness. It's Christians who speak up for the immigrant, who speak up for the oppressed, who speak up for the marginalized. That's what we do to bring good into the world so that when people turn back at us and they're like, well, I don't know about those Christians, there's a collective witness that says, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand the blessing that they are to this world. You don't understand the blessing that they are to this community. If God took away our church, would Farmington Hills look and say, we're missing something because that community isn't here anymore? I pray that that would be the case. Because we are called to do good. For God's sake, we are called to do good. And then finally, he gives us our third thing and. Verse 3 says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He reminds us that in Christ, we have been given incredible freedom. And because of that freedom, we have the profound opportunity to live in a unique way to serve God and serve others around us. And so what he wants to remind us is, for freedom's sake, live to serve. 
live to be the sort of people that serve in the world. Now, we love freedom in our society. We love to promote freedom. We love to defend freedom. We love to talk about freedom. But what we have to be careful of as Christians is that oftentimes when we speak of freedom in our society, we mean a freedom for self-autonomy, a freedom for self-determination. That what we love about freedom is I have the right to do with my life what I want for my own benefit. It's written into our documents that we pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And Thomas Jefferson rewrote John Locke's things to promote this idea that self-determination and self-actualization is ultimately of the highest good and value. And that's often what gets translated. Yes, Christ has set us free. He has set us free from sin. He has set us free from evil and the bondage. He has set us free from the penalty that stood against us, from the power that holds us. And one day he will set us free from the presence of sin forever. But he doesn't set us free for our own sake. He sets us free for God's sake. And therefore, when we speak of Christian or biblical freedom, it's freedom not for self-determination, but for God's determination over our lives to be people who are served and submitted under him because that's how we're designed. And when we live under his rule and reign, we experience the greatest flourishing. We experience the greatest of life. We experience what he designed the world for. So we are free, free indeed, but we're free to serve. We're free to have our lives make much of God and to be a blessing and benefit to others. This is how we live as good citizens, doing good, serving God and others within our society. And I think it's when people see that that they recognize the power of Christ, of who he is. You know, I was reminded of this a few years ago with a conversation that I had with a church leader in India. For a while, I had the privilege of working with an organization that worked to help the deletes in India. And if you know anything about India, they've been controlled by the caste system for many a generation, and the deletes were the lowest of the caste system. Often, counted as untouchables, literally untouched, ignored, the most destitute of society. And many years ago, the leaders of the delete people decided that they no longer were to continue to submit themselves under the oppressiveness of Hinduism and that they were going to begin to look for a new religion. Many of them converted to Buddhism, but a whole droves of them have come to Christ and I got the opportunity to work with an organization in India that worked with the Dalits and helping them provide schools and education and health care and churches and all sorts of things. And one time when I was over there, I was having a conversation with one of the leaders that was a part of this organization. He was Indian himself. And he told me a story about one time when he was sitting with a man while they were in Lucknow. And they were discussing why so many Dalits were ultimately turning from Hinduism to Buddhism, but then ultimately to Christianity. And I thought this was a great quote. He said, the man said to my friend, he said, Buddhism is an empty religion. But we know that if our people become Christian, 
Our children will be educated. Our women will be cared for. Our lives will be valued. And it always struck me because in so many ways, that's the witness of what Christian community is meant to be. That there's people who long to step in to who we are as the church because they know that we offer something that the world doesn't. But that only comes when we pursue being people of goodness and service, when we're good citizens of God's kingdom first and then good citizens of the world around us. And then Peter closes our passage and I think gives us our final little bit of guidance with a great, what I'm going to call a great Christian campaign slogan. Who doesn't love a good campaign slogan, right? I don't know, maybe at this point you're tired of them. If I see one more political commercial, I'm ready to throw my shoe through the television. But there's always been great political slogans, those things that stick in your mind and draw you towards the ideals of whatever the candidate is promoting. Phrases like, change we can believe in, or I like Ike, or keep cool with Coolidge, or my favorite from Abraham Lincoln, don't swap horses in the middle of the stream. Those little phrases that kind of help give you the essence and the purpose. And Peter, in many ways, ends this section by giving us kind of these four statements that in some ways summarize so much of what he's saying. You see him in 17, and if there was a slogan that I could give you for this is how we, as Christians, should engage the civil discourse, the civic area, our governing authorities, the center and institutions of our society, I think that I couldn't summarize it any better than what Peter says here. He says first, honor everyone. That the Christian disposition to others within our society, to others within our world, is always one of honor. We seek to promote the best of who God has made us to be. We seek to hold up the dignity and value and worth of every human being. We seek to speak in a way that brings life to people, not death. We seek to be people of honor. When it comes to the Christian community, when it comes to the way we speak to one another on social media, when it comes to the way we relate to those that are different from us, we should be people of honor. Yes, we might disagree with others in our world and society, but can we do it in a way that elevates them, that sees them as valuable? I fear oftentimes in our civil discord, we don't operate from a place of honor. But what Peter reminds us is the disposition that we are to have to everyone around us is that very thing, to honor everyone. And he says, love the brotherhood. Not only do we honor all human beings, we have a unique, specific call to love our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we talked about this even earlier in this letter, that we're called to prioritize and love and champion and care for one another, both in our own local spiritual family and in God's global spiritual family. That when people look at Christians and the way they engage one another, they can't help but define it by love. And what makes me more sad than anything in our continued divisive and divi or divisive political environment is to see the way that is seeping into the church, where the church is no longer marked by love for one another, but it's continually marked by divisions of one another. 
that you have red churches and blue churches, black churches and white churches, rich churches and poor churches, that people do not see God's vision of a multi-ethnic, multi-economic, multi-different ideologies, I don't even have a fancy word to say that, that come together under the lordship of Jesus and operate with love for one another. Listen to me. Whatever side of the aisle you find yourself, or even if you try to be in the middle, if for one second you think that another Christian isn't really a Christian because of their political ideology, you have fallen far from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because his gospel is higher than any political ideology. His kingdom is not of this world. We must love one another no matter what our differences are. Finally, Peter reminds us that we are called to fear God. Notice in this list, that this one stands uniquely different than all the ways that we operate with one another. Even in a moment, he's going to call us to honor the emperor. But there is only one that we fear. And not fear in the sense of just, I'm terrified, although there's a little aspect of that as well, but fear in the sense of awe. Fear in the sense of the recognizing the supreme chief place that he sits as God. There is only one that we are called to give our allegiance and our devotion to, and that is our God. That is who we are. We do not sell our souls or our community for the sake of political power or political ideology. We do not lower ourselves to the place where our allegiance can be given to any party or person above our King Jesus. And we need to stop at some point being a church that puts up candidates above Christ, that puts up policies above Christ, that puts up our political differences above Christ. We fear God and God alone. And I get heated because I'm I'm tired. I'm tired of the disdain that is brought upon the church of Jesus Christ because we have lowered ourselves to give our, our devotion and allegiance to something far less than our king. And I pray we're different. I pray we're different. No matter what happens on Tuesday, I pray we're different. Where's your devotion? Where's your allegiance? Where's the thing you hold most valuable in your life? I pray, brothers and sisters, it is Christ. And I guarantee as long as I am the pastor of the church, we will fight to keep Christ central and to fear God above all other institutions of man. And finally, he ends by calling us to honor the emperor. He circles back and reminds us to honor the authority over us. I've said it many times, I do not know what will happen Tuesday. I'm not sure anyone fully does. But regardless of how you feel about this election, I know that when you wake up on Wednesday morning or Thursday morning or whenever we get these election results back, your heart is called to honor whoever's placed into authority. You're called to recognize the supreme authority of God and that God ordains those that he allows to be placed into authority that he is sovereign and in control, and we are called then to be people of honor to those in authority over us. So whether we like it or not, no matter what happens, I pray that you would pursue honor this week. 
I pray you would pursue love. But ultimately, I pray more than anything, you would give your allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is king. And not only that, he's given us this example. Think with me for a moment that the perfect son of God was willing to engage all of these things that he honored everyone he engaged with. He loved his spiritual family and his disciples. He ultimately submitted himself to God over man, but he even honored the authority over him to the point of death on our behalf. May we be a church that follows his example in the way we engage the world around us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm just thankful right now, God, for the example that you have given us. I'm thankful that in this season where there are so many competing messages and ideologies and questions and it feels like we're getting bombarded with things all the time, that God, I confess to myself, often leaves me confused, frustrated, not always knowing how to handle or step or pursue or vote or all those things. I'm thankful right now that you, you not only gave us commands to obey, you gave us an example in your own life so that we can look to you for how we are called to engage those around us, for how we're called to relate to the governing authorities around us, for how ultimately we're called to submit to you, God, as our great king. So I pray right now in this moment for every single one of us that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ. That in the midst of this week where I know so many will try to drag our eyes off him, would you set our eyes on him? Would you fix our gaze? Keep us focused there. Let us follow the example he has set. Let us trust in his kingdom above all earthly kingdoms. Let us trust in his death and resurrection above everything else in this world. And may from that place we be people who live like Christ in the world. That you would move in our hearts, even this week, in the way we respond to this election. That we would look more like Jesus. That we would be a church that is good and brings your goodness into the world. God, we confess we're unable to do that in our flesh, and our own strength. We need your spirit. We need your power. We need your conviction, your call. We need everything that you promise. And so we stand upon what you have promised today, and we ask us to help our eyes to be fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Even now, may he be worshiped and exalted above all other things we pray. In your holy name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.